This podcast is like eating your vegetables. This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Yeah, I mean, we're talking like the good vegetables. Grilled asparagus, roasted cauliflower, artichokes with homemade lemon aioli, that sort of stuff. The good stuff. Anyway, we're approaching the end in Romans, and this week it is a long passage in terms of number of verses, but most of it is taken up by an extended discussion of the merits of vegetarianism, sort of. And so it made sense to address all of this in one go. As he so often does, Paul introduces this discussion of whether to eat meat or not with a passage laying out the theological basis on which to make the decision. Paul seems to really mean it when he says that he hopes the Romans will be able to think well about the issues that are facing them as a community, so that they might be able to discern God's will in each situation. We start with the end of chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, a verse I'm guessing Dave Ramsey has plastered on mugs, t-shirts, refrigerator magnets, and whatever other merch he's selling to people in financial difficulty. It starts in verse 8 and says, Don't owe anything to anyone except the debt of mutual love. There you go. The biblical mandate, do not have a mortgage or credit cards, if you take these words completely out of their context, that is. Anyway, continuing on. If you love your neighbor, you see, you have fulfilled the law. Commandments like don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to its neighbor, so love is the fulfillment of the law. This is all the more important because you know what time it is. The hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. Our salvation, you see, is nearer now than it was when we first came to faith. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave appropriately, as in the daytime. Not in wild parties and drunkenness, not in orgies and shameless immorality, not in bad temper and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and don't make allowances for the flesh and its lusts. As far as debt goes, we need to remind ourselves that the financial systems of the ancient world were profoundly different than the ones in our own, and while Paul would certainly counsel Christians to be wise about their finances, that's not what he's doing here. What he is doing is transitioning from the discussion of money in the form of taxes in the previous verses to the discussion that he actually wants to have moving forward, the metaphorical debt of mutual love for one another. This is another of the places where Paul is talking in very similar terms to Jesus about love for neighbor being the fulfillment of Torah. Once again, N.T. Wright reminds us, fulfillment of Torah does not mean the performance of good works designed to put God in one's debt. Rather, it is the discharge of one's own debt to one's neighbor, but also to God. Paul's point is that living in a way that loves neighbor was always the point of Torah in the first place. It is a way of life that reflects who Jesus is and how Jesus interacted with the world. And in fact, those of us who have been ransomed by Jesus, to use another of Paul's economic metaphors, and who now therefore belong to Jesus, have an obligation to treat others the way Jesus would treat them. And this is summed up in loving them. Paul lists off several of the Ten Commandments, placing them all under the heading of what it means to love your neighbor in practice. N.T. Wright points out that the centrality of this command to love was quite distinctive in early Christianity. It was not shared in the broader culture, and we can miss the radicalness of it today, being so used to God is love sermons and the like. 
As Paul makes clear in this whole final section of the letter, not least in the discussion that is about to come in chapters 14 and 15, love is not an emotion we feel for our neighbor. It is a way of treating them. As DC Talk once said, love is a verb. (laughs) How's that for dating myself? Before Paul gets to one of the key ways this works itself out in the Christian church in practice, he reminds the Romans once again of what time it is. We've touched on this several times at this point, but Paul is emphasizing that we are now living in the age to come. And just as it would be inappropriate for most people to sleep through the day, since the night is the time for sleeping, so it is inappropriate to live lives conformed to the present age, as the first verses of chapter 12 put it, when it is time to be conformed to the image of Jesus. N.T. Wright makes several really important points about the things Paul lists as works of the flesh, where Paul says, let's behave appropriately as in the daytime, not in wild parties and drunkenness, not in orgies and shameless immorality, not in bad temper and jealousy. Wright points out that they are characteristic nighttime behaviors in the literal sense that they normally happen after dark, and in Paul's metaphorical sense that they belong with the old age rather than with the new day that is dawning in Christ. We should not forget, he continues, that quarreling and jealousy are put on exactly the same level as immorality. There are many churches where the first four sins are unheard of, but the last two run riot. Many of us grew up in churches, or youth groups, I suppose, like the ones Wright is describing, where sexual immorality was the main sin that was ever really worried about, and any number of other things were tolerated or sometimes even celebrated. The fruit of that is that many today are rebelling against the hypocrisy of it all in a way that isn't terribly life-giving either. I wonder if we might find more life in a church culture that takes seriously living in ways that reflect the character of God in all things, rather than reacting against a prudishness that was always more cultural than biblical. There is something about faithfulness, respect for one another, and integrity in sexual relationships that matters, not as the only thing, but as one of many important ways we can reflect the character of Jesus in our daily bodily lives. In fact, what Paul wants to explore in more depth as an application of this command to love your neighbor is not sexual relationships. He does that in other letters like 1 Corinthians, but not here. In Romans, he takes on what to our cultural eyes might at first glance seem kind of strange, the practices of eating and of celebrating holidays. But remember, All of what is to come is an outworking of what we saw in these verses about loving your neighbor. And as we will see, the discussion is very much also about Jew-Gentile relationships within the church, as much of this letter has been. This is Romans 14, now starting in verse 1. Welcome someone who is weak in faith, but not in order to have disputes on difficult points. One person believes it is all right to eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats should not despise the one who does not, and the one who does not should not condemn the one who does, because God has welcomed them. Who do you think you are to judge someone else's servants? They stand or fall before their own master. And stand they will, because the master can make them stand. One person reckons one day more important than another. Someone else regards all days as equally important. Each person must make up their own mind. The one who celebrates the day does so in honor of the Lord, just as the one who eats does so in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. The one who does not eat, too, is abstaining in honor of the Lord and likewise gives thanks to God. 
Paul begins by counseling the Romans to include within the fellowship those who are weak in faith, by which he probably means not people who don't believe the right doctrinal things, but rather those who are still maturing in their understanding of all the implications of the gospel. Paul's gospel has been that Jesus has died and risen from the dead. The age to come is here, so live like it as a part of the one family of God. And working out what that all means in practice will be challenging and require the use of our minds. Some Christians will be further along in reasoning out these implications, which could lead to unending disputes about the more difficult questions of how to reflect Jesus into the world. It seems to be the case that the Romans have not been doing this well as of now, or perhaps parts of the Roman church have not, which is why Paul here feels the need to address the issue. In any event, there are any number of possible difficult questions that could be argued over by Christians, and we have unendingly for 2,000 years, but Paul has particular examples in mind that he wants to address right here. That issue is the eating of meat. Why is this an issue? Because in a city like Rome, the majority of the meat on the market had been dedicated to the gods in one way or another, whether in a major temple or in some smaller shrine. And virtually all of the meat on offer had not been killed, according to kosher food laws. This is, in other words, a Jew-Gentile issue. Although there could be some Gentiles, I suppose, coming out of the pagan world who were sensitive to the eating of meat sacrificed to idols because of what it reminded them of from their own life or something of that sort. Paul recognizes that not all Jews were going to be comfortable eating non-kosher meat, let alone meat that was tied to pagan gods and goddesses, and that they might just eat vegetables to make it easier. He and other Jews, on the other hand, have come to the conclusion that the Old Testament food laws are no longer necessary to follow, and in fact that doing so would draw an unnecessary dividing line between Jewish and Gentile Christians. But he recognizes that there might be others who haven't reached that level of mature reflection yet. And love in this case would mean finding a way to not judge one another. He says more specifically that the one who is more mature and eats meat, knowing that it is no longer an issue, is not to despise the non-eater. Think of the eye roll that accompanies the, oh my gosh, can you believe this person is so hung up on this thing that isn't even that important? But then the vegetarian is not to condemn the meat eater. From their perspective, after all, the one eating meat is disobeying God's clear commands, and so their perspective is one of condemnation. Both perspectives, however, the despising or the condemning, ignores the reality, as Paul explained at length in chapters 3 to 5 of Romans, that God has already welcomed both and will make them stand, which is a way of referring to the future resurrection. If both are welcomed by God and will be welcomed into the resurrection, then who are they to judge one another rather than welcoming one another? One curious thing in all this is that in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says something seemingly different. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what have I to do with judging those outside? Are you not judges of those who are inside, meaning inside the church? So which is it, Paul? Are we supposed to judge those inside the church or not? <laughs> There's a famous Christian saying that I believe comes to us from Augustine that is meant to sum this question up. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, meaning love, but love doesn't rhyme with unity in English. So the saying usually keeps to the old Latin root. 
It would be nice if Paul had done a more thorough job of defining for us precisely which things are essentials or non-essentials, but alas. Apparently, the principle of one family, encompassing both Jew and Gentile, is an essential that must be followed, but the seemingly related question of whether one eats meat or follows kosher food laws, that's a non-essential. Paul then adds another layer to this, introducing the disagreement over holidays, whether some days are more special than others. Since this is a continuation of the argument over kosher food laws, it seems most likely that Paul is referring to those who still follow the Jewish festival calendar and keep Sabbath, but it's also possible he's referring to the various pagan festivals that would happen in the capital city of Rome. Either way, the point is the same. This also is a non-essential, one that people might legitimately disagree over. As long as in both cases people are trying to honor God with their decision, the result of the decision is not something worth splitting the church over. To reiterate all the reasons for this, Paul continues by bringing it back to Jesus. Starting in verse 7, he says, None of us lives to ourselves. None of us dies to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. That is why the Messiah died and came back to life, so that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You then, why do you condemn your fellow Christian? Or you, why do you despise a fellow Christian? We must all appear before the judgment seat of God. As the Bible says, As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, we must each give an account of ourselves to God. The follower of Jesus must consider all things in relation to Jesus. Everything we do is done with and for Jesus and should be done in a way that conforms to Jesus's character. Who is right in the current debate is far less important than this. And so how we treat one another matters and we will be part of the account we will need to give of ourselves before God on the last day. Did we love one another? Did we, in that sense, fulfill Torah or did we not? To make this point, Paul refers again to Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 45, 23. Paul often refers to Isaiah. We've seen this. And even more often, he does Isaiah 40 to 55. That's the section of Isaiah that looks forward to the coming of the Messiah and the restoration of Israel. Paul continually brings his readers back to that story. As N.T. Wright points out, Paul's readers are the people for whom the promises and now the responsibilities found in that section of Isaiah are coming true. Wright also sees in Paul's quotation about every knee bowing a veiled shot at the Roman Empire, which, of course, expected every knee to bow to it. The unity of Christians across traditional barriers, Wright says, is a sign to the principalities and powers that a greater rule than theirs has now begun. Maintaining that unity, then, is not just a matter of preventing squabbles and bad feelings in the church. It is a part of essential Christian witness to the one Lord. If the church divides along lines related to ethnic or tribal loyalty, it is still living in the world of Caesar. Paul then continues the discussion starting in verse 13. Do not then pass judgment on one another. If you want to exercise judgment, do so on this question. How to avoid placing obstacles or stumbling blocks in front of a fellow family member. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but things do become unclean when people regard them as such. For if your brother or sister is being harmed by what you eat, you are no longer behaving in accordance with love. 
Don't let your food destroy someone for whom the Messiah died. So don't let something that is good for you make other people blaspheme. God's kingdom, you see, isn't about food and drink, but about justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves the Messiah like this pleases God and deserves respect from other people. So then, let's find out and follow the way of peace and discover how to build each other up. Don't pull down God's work on account of food. Everything is pure, but it becomes evil for anyone who causes offense when they eat. It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or anything else which makes your fellow Christians stumble. Hold firmly to the faith which you have as a matter between yourself and God. When you have thought something through, and can go ahead without passing judgment on yourself, God's blessing on you. But anyone who doubts is condemned, even in the act of eating, because it doesn't spring from faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, we might be feeling like, we get it, Paul, we get it. But the fact Paul just keeps going on about this issue shows how important it must have been to him and to the Roman church. And we wouldn't have to look too hard to find some similar non-essential issues in the church today that might fall into the same category. If anything, we in the church have not taken the call to unity as seriously as Paul would want us to. And these verses are a reminder to us of that. Love, Paul is wanting to drive home is about being intentional, about not tripping up fellow believers. Paul's point seems to be that for those who have not yet reached the maturity to see that, for example, food doesn't have to be kosher, to be pressured into eating it might actually damage them. It's hard to get back into Paul's head to see what exactly he might mean here, but I suppose the logic might be that if someone is not able to separate meat from the idols that it has been dedicated to, Well, then pressuring them to eat would put them in a position of believing that they were participating in pagan worship in that way. And even if that weren't in reality, their understanding of it would put them in a compromised position that could do them real harm. This might seem a bit silly to us today, but I guess Paul would counsel us not to despise our weaker brothers and sisters in this matter. I've heard, as I'm sure many of you have as well, these verses applied to a situation where someone who has worked hard to get sober is then in a situation where fellow believers are drinking. And I think this is actually a good current application, even if it isn't quite what Paul is addressing, of course. Sure, Christians can drink, Paul would say. Also, thinking about the when and where and with whom and how much of it all is more important than exercising our rights in the matter. Verse 17 has a nice little summary of what life in God's kingdom is all about. It's about justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright points out that this is a summary of chapter 5 verses 1 to 5, which say something pretty similar. Whatever enhances those things, justice, peace, and joy for ourselves, but more importantly for our brothers and sisters and for the world, that's the most important thing. That is what love looks like. These are shots across the bow of the good ship individualism that many of us are sailing on these days. Christians today are far more concerned about their own individual rights and freedoms than Paul would be comfortable with, I think, and far less concerned about how their actions affect their fellow Christians and the church and world as a whole. Paul would see this attitude as antithetical to the gospel. And I think we should note that the things Paul is talking about here are actually right at the heart of Jewish ethnicity and identity. These are not incidental things. These are the non-essentials that Paul is using to make the argument that Christians may disagree about stuff. But if only we held core planks of our cultural and ethnic identity so loosely, I think that would be better for the church and for the world. 
Paul makes this even more clear as he continues as we go on now to chapter 15. We, the strong ones, should bear with the frailty of the weak and not please ourselves. Each one of us should please our neighbor for his or her good and to build them up. The Messiah, you see, did not please himself. Instead, as the Bible says, the reproaches of those who reproached you are fallen on me. Whatever was written ahead of time, you see, was written for us to learn from so that through patience and through the encouragement of the Bible, we might have hope. May the God of patience and encouragement grant you to come to a common mind among yourselves in accordance with the Messiah Jesus, so that with one mind and one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. In this effort to focus less on our own rights than on the good of others, we are, after all, emulating Jesus. We are doing the very thing that we are supposed to be doing, of reflecting Jesus's character in our loving interactions with one another. Paul makes his point by quoting Psalm 69, verse 9, which looks forward to the work of the Messiah in ways that echo Jesus's crucifixion, which is, of course, the ultimate example of Jesus not pleasing himself, but sacrificing for the sake of the world. And reflecting this sacrifice is, again, not only the way to unity in the church, but, as Paul says in verse 6, the way to glorify God. The fact that this sacrifice was written about beforehand, as Paul says, is a way of confirming for us that God's character is consistent and that we are, in fact, fulfilling Torah when we reflect this Jesus to the world. As N.T. Wright puts it, as long as we insist on reducing Christianity to slogans and isolated doctrines or rules, rather than seeing it primarily as the great story of what the one God has done through the one Lord for the one world, we will never understand what Paul is talking about. Since we've explored the details of this underlying debate already, let's move on to how Paul concludes his discussion of mutual love in the church. Welcome one another, therefore, as the Messiah has welcomed you to God's glory. Let me tell you why. The Messiah became a servant of the circumcised people in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. That is to confirm the promises of the patriarchs and to bring the nations to praise God for his mercy. As the Bible says, this is why I will praise you among the nations and will sing to your name. And again, it says, rejoice you nations with his people. And again, praise the Lord all nations and let all the people sing his praise. And Isaiah says once more, there shall be the root of Jesse, the one who rises up to rule the nations. The nations shall hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul closes the discussion, and in fact, the main body of the letter, with a summary of what all this means. The Messiah has come to serve and to bring the Gentiles and Jews together under the promises God made to the Old Testament patriarchs. This is both a summary of this section of the book and really of the book as a whole. God has been faithful to their promises, and the outworking of that is this one family of God that includes all the nations. So live like one family, no matter what. Love one another, Jew and Gentile alike. Serve one another, weak and strong alike. Embody the justice, peace, and joy of the kingdom of God together through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all this concludes with, to the surprise of exactly none of us, a string of quotations from the Old Testament. Richard Hayes, in his book, Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul, sees these passages as highly important for Paul's argument. He writes, Why does Paul place this florilegium, 
Anyone who can define that word off the top of your head, I'd love to hear from you. Write in, pomonevalleychurch at gmail.com. But why does Paul place this florilegium at the end of his letter to the Romans? Clearly, he has saved his clinchers for the end. After much elusive and labored argumentation, Paul finally draws back the curtain and reveals a collection of passages that explicitly embody his vision for a church composed of Jews and Gentiles glorifying God together. And he does this, it should be noted, with a quotation from the Pentateuch, one from the prophets, and two from the Psalms. The point is clear. All through the Old Testament, this has been the dream, the goal towards which God has been working and that now, through Jesus and the Spirit, is being fulfilled. The quotations, for those who are interested, are Psalm 18.49, then Deuteronomy 32.43, then Psalm 117.1, and finally, Isaiah 11, Paul kind of skips around in his quotation to different parts of that chapter. Each speaks of the nations coming to join in praising God, which is exactly what Paul has been saying all along. One really fascinating thing, the first quotation is from Psalm 1849. But if you read the following verse, verse 50, Hayes points out, it says, magnifying the saving deeds of God's king and performing mercy for his Messiah, for David and his seed forever. If you go back to the very first chapter of Romans, in fact, verses three to five at the very beginning of this book, Jesus is described as being the Messiah who comes from David's seed, who commissioned Paul to proclaim the mercies of God to the nations. Paul really has come full circle in this letter. Thanks for joining me once again in the backdrop. I hope it has been helpful in getting your bearings in this tricky and dense letter. I certainly have found the research to be helpful for myself. Next time, we're going to be wrapping this whole thing up looking at the rest of chapter 15 and chapter 16, where Paul concludes by detailing his travel plans and greeting maybe every single person in Rome by name. I'm kidding, I think. Anyway, finish up Romans for that episode, which will be out in a couple weeks, and I will see you then. Bye.